Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hi, I'm Daniel Caffarelli, Practice Leads for Trade and Manufacturing at Global Council. Today, we're going to be talking about what the Biden administration means for the transatlantic relationship. Joining me today are Miranda Lutz, a senior associate in our DC office, and Alessandro Gangarossa, a trade and EU policy associate based in Brussels. In this podcast, we're going to try and distill what the confirmation of Catherine Tai as the United States trade representative and the publication of the USTR's trade policy agenda for 2021 tells us about where US trade policy is likely to head over the next four years, more specifically, also what implication it carries for uh, the transatlantic relationships, uh, the one between the US and the UK, and uh, the other between the US and the EU. So, Miranda, starting with you, there have been quite a few developments over the past few weeks in the US around trade policy uh, that I believe help us understand a bit better what the key drivers of US trade policy under Biden are likely to be. What can you tell us about that? Sure. So after a sleepy start to trade policy in the Biden administration, like you said, things have certainly picked up in the last few weeks. Most notably, uh, Catherine Tai, a former Ways and Meads trade staffer, was nominated for the uh, position of U.S. trade representative, and she had her Senate confirmation hearing. And we also had the release of the USTR's 2021 policy uh, trade agenda. All of that comes in addition to some recent actions around Boeing Airbus dispute uh, tariffs, and so it certainly has been a more exciting time here in D.C. I think some of the major lessons learned from these uh, initial actions on the, the Biden administration is that there are certain elements of President Trump's approach that will remain, specifically looking at the use of tariffs and export controls, which are very much considered to be legitimate tools in the in the trade policy toolkit uh, by Democrats, and also a continued emphasis on buy American and domestic priorities. And that is certainly going to be the main focus of the Biden administration. He said it on the campaign trail, and he seems to be putting his words into practice. And we'll see a, a trade policy that is much more focused on delivering outcomes domestically rather than achieving policy objectives abroad. So that means less of a focus on on bilateral trade deals, which was certainly the the hallmark of the, the Trump administration. We've also seen some new points of emphasis in the U.S. trade strategy, namely the, the focus on climate and sustainability and a worker-centric trade policy, and we can get into more of what that means uh, later. And then, again, just a very strong focus on China and how the U.S. can work with trade partners and others to address uh, perceived uh, market distortion tactic. You know, interestingly, it said USTR uh, nominee Catherine Tai said that the Biden administration would look to enforce the phase one trade deal with China that was inked under President Trump. And then on a, another note, um, industrial policy will certainly play a, a greater role in U.S. trade strategy.
strategy going forward. We had the Biden administration authorize a 100-day review of certain critical supply chains, um, particularly looking at pharmaceuticals, semiconductors, batteries. And so we'll see that could have some impact on the uh, the future of the trade strategy. And we'll certainly see that develop over the next few months. Well, I, I was going to say uh, nothing really surprising since quite a bit was trailed in the campaign, but also by the transition team. But I think that there is a couple of things that I would like you to drill down a bit more. You mentioned a similar policy toolkit to that used by the Trump administration. Can you expand a bit on that? I mean, obviously, we have seen developments in the U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminium. There are also some questions around what could happen with the other set of tariffs that the Trump administration was expected to impose related to digital services taxes in uh, the EU and elsewhere. Can you tell us a bit more about that and where you think policy is likely to head in this area? Sure. So let me um, maybe start at the beginning here and give a brief explainer as to what these different Section 232, Section 301, it's it's a lot of numbers. Um, so uh, Section 232 tariffs basically give the uh, administration the authority to impose duties when imports have been determined that they threaten national security. So this is the case for the tariffs on aluminum and steel. And that is different from the Section 301 tariffs, which those are imposed on a, against another country if their policies are found to be unreasonable or discriminatory to the U.S. That's the class of tariffs that applies to Chinese products and towards um, the other, other proposed tariffs that would be put into place against the various digital services taxes. And so what we've seen over the past several years in, in the U.S. policy narrative is much greater support for the use of these tools than, you know, perhaps what we saw 10 years ago, particularly for Section 232, which was uh, before Trump administration very rarely used. And when he began to implement Section 232 tariffs, there was um, some criticism from Democrats that this was, you know, expanding the role of the, of the executive and not really in line with the intent of those products. But we've seen an evolution. And now um, the, the transition is really that Democrats have come around to using these tools as a way to, again, get back to some of their domestic policy goals. So in particular, Section 232 against steel and aluminum it has broad support with domestic constituencies in the steel and manufacturing industry in the U.S. and then labor unions are very supportive. So that'll make it quite difficult for Biden to lift any of those tariffs, even against partners such as the, the EU. When we're looking at Section 301 tariffs, those are the tariffs that have been broadly deployed against China, and that was in response to their uh, tech transfers and IP policies. And those, again, might prove to be a little bit sticky as there is kind of a competition here in D.C. You can't be um, you know, too tough on China. And so those will remain. And interesting for the, the transatlantic relationship is that the... 
or the Trump administration had initiated a number of investigations into the digital services tax proposals offered by France, the EU, UK, and a number of other countries. And the determination was that those DSTs, digital service taxes, were in fact discriminatory towards US companies. And so it'll be up to the Biden administration to determine whether or not to impose retaliatory tariffs. And I think we'll see, you know, that will be a, a clear indicator of just how far the Biden administration is willing to go in deploying the same tools that were used under the, the Trump administration. So what do you say is internal pressure to continue using Section 232 uh, in steel and aluminium, and the jury is still out on where tariffs related to the EU and EU member state development of digital services tax. So this is something to watch. And obviously, I want to bring Alessandra into that. But just before that, uh, I just wanted to ask you about another point of tension uh, between the EU and the US over the past four years, and, and this related to the threat of Section 232 tariffs on automotives. Is that something that the Biden administration, you think, would seek to uh, revive, or can we have some kind of certainty that at least this point of tension is uh, behind us? I think on this particular point that the the tension is behind us, I think that politically there's not the same motivations for, for President Biden as there were for President Trump. And, you know, coming into office and a main focus of his administration is kind of rebuilding these multilateral transatlantic relationships. And part of that is you have to offer some olive branches and de-escalate tension in certain areas so that you can make progress on other perhaps more meaningful and more contentious, you know, aspects thinking of DSTs or the Airbus Boeing dispute. So at least for the automotive uh, industry, I think we can say you're in a better space now than you were, uh, you know, a few months ago. Great. I think that we can all uh, sigh with relief on that. Just before we move on onto the uh, US FTA agenda, could you summarize in one or two sentences, Matt, what is likely to continue and what is likely to change from the direction in trade policy set by Trump and Robert Lighthizer? So I think the main change is actually going to be the rhetoric around trade policy, not necessarily the trade policy objectives and goals itself. So President Trump was obviously very prolific in um, his comments on trade and, and starting you know, trade wars with whether it be China or the EU, and that will certainly not be a priority or not be the approach of the Biden administration. I think their ultimate goal is to essentially make trade boring again um, and not have something that, you know, we're all following on our Twitter feeds to see whether or not the the latest and greatest will be. Um, so that's going to be the most meaningful change. You know, actually, President Trump had a very strong domestic focus um, within his trade policy, so that will certainly continue on with the with the Biden administration. You know, there's bipartisan support for um, greater integration of an industrial policy with trade, so that will continue. Um, I mentioned earlier the the kind of tough approach on China will certainly continue, um, but I think you know 
going back to what I said about you know, all of branches is we will see greater coordination, I think, with the EU, UK, other partners, Australia, Japan, on, on certain other issues that can maybe be carved out of the greater trade agenda. Surely one of the things that will also change is uh, the focus on bilateral deals. As you mentioned in your introduction, you did stress that perhaps the Biden administration will be more focused on the multilateral agenda. But for those who, who still had uh, some hopes that the bilateral agenda will be revived in the second half of the Biden administration's first term, uh, what do you think are the main challenges ahead of that agenda? Sure. So one of the main challenges to the bilateral trade agenda, um, particularly when you're looking at the prospects for a U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement, is logistical. So in the U.S., there is a mechanism called the Trade Promotion Authority, which is basically the power that Congress gives to the executive to negotiate trade deals and have expedited consideration of the implementing legislation for those trade deals through Congress. There are over 500 lawmakers on Capitol Hill. And so if you have each one of them being able to nitpick a trade deal, it would basically be impossible for the deal to pass through Congress. So Trade Promotion Authority, often referred to as TPA or Fast Track, basically allows an up or down vote on this implementation language. So it makes it far easier for the USTR to negotiate trade deals. And essentially, without that mechanism in place, it is essentially impossible to complete a trade deal. So the current TPA, TPA is, is time limited. It's usually reauthorized for, for several years. The current TPA expires in July of this year. And pursuant to TPA requirements, uh, reporting requirements to Congress, a U.S.-U.K. free trade deal would have to be submitted to Congress by April 1st. Uh, it is now, you know, one or two weeks into March, and, and that is certainly not going to, is not a feasible turnaround for for negotiators. So when you look at the prospects for a U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be put on the back burner forever. Uh, Chairman Neal, who's the, the Democratic chair of the, the Ways and Means Committee in particular, is very eager to see the completion of its deal. And there is bipartisan support for it on, on Capitol Hill. But what the length and time frame does mean is that industry will now have more time to build up grassroots support for their objectives within the deal. Under President Trump, there was some fear that there would be a, an early harvest or a mini deal that could potentially leave out certain industries. And now it looks like that's not going to be the case. So it'll be, I think, good in the long term for most um, industries seeking to, you know, financial services or uh, services in general, pharmaceuticals, agriculture, there are a number of areas where there's some real progress that can be made. And now there's the time to to build up the momentum around those initiatives. Alessandro, you've been quiet uh, until now. What do you make of all this for the other transatlantic relationship, the one between the EU and the US. Well, Daniel, I think there are good news and bad news for us uh, in Brussels looking at the future of EU-US uh, relations. I mean, it struck me to see how much in the two strategies the common elements and how they address trade issues in similar ways. If we look, for example, at how Washington and Brussels aim to place 
at the core of their trade agenda, social, climate, environmental issues, it is clear that both now see trade as a way to achieve broader political objectives. And I think it's also interesting to see how both the US and the EU are now retreating, as we said just now, from the bilateral trade agenda. Uh, favoring instead a multilateral approach. Now, free traders out there are certainly disappointed and probably concerned. If we look at the bright side, my view is that uh, if you put the two strategies side by side, there are points you can connect and link together. And here is where we can hope to see greater cooperation going forward. Obviously, the emphasis on climate and environmental issues as key driver of the trade agenda means that both sides might want to work together on a global approach. And in the same way, both the EU and the US look at the WTO and the multilateral initiatives as a basis for their positive trade agenda. Unfortunately, as you can imagine, commitments in these areas are quite high level and vague, which means that we need to see how the two sides plan to put words into practice to understand if things can actually improve. This is actually areas of Potential cooperation can turn into further friction if we think, for example, how the two sides want to reform and improve the WTO, they look at different ways to do it. And same goes for the discussion on carbon border adjustment mechanisms, for which there is no indication yet on how these uh, would work in practice between the two sides without creating more problems than solutions. But if we put these uh, few areas of convergence aside, we clearly see that there is still quite a lot going on on the ground, uh, which confirms that the sense of security that some felt uh, with a new administration taking over is largely misplaced. Uh, take, for example, the tensions that we were just flagging on aircraft subsidies, uh, steel and aluminum, and digital services taxes. Obviously, one of the key elements for the EU to build a positive uh, transatlantic agenda is the trade and Technology Council, uh, and this is in line with the EU ambition to be more strategic on international regulatory cooperation, and in particular in areas linked with digital trade. But obviously, it takes two to tango, so we will need to see if on the US side there is same amount of interest in such of uh, initiatives. Miranda, what are your views on that? I don't think he's got his dancing shoes on yet. Um, so I think at least on, if we go to the carbon border adjustment mechanism, there's a lot of interest from the administration to do something positive on climate. But if you look at the domestic issues and nuances, it's going to make it very hard for the U.S. to make any sort of um, positive commitment on that. I very much agree with Alessandro on the that there is a shared desire to reform the WTO, but like he said, a very different approach. The U.S. still blocking um, nominees to the appellate body, you know, and is going to maintain that as leverage to see the reforms that it wants um, enacted. We've also got some interesting dynamics with the the Biden administration maintaining some uh, of the Trump administration's approaches to the WTO, namely amending the the U.S. Uh, government procurement agreement schedule. So the Trump administration have wanted to remove um, medicine, medicine, certain medicines and countermeasures from that, and the Biden administration seems to be pursuing that as well. And that could be a potential challenge to reform as the U.S. is being a bit of a, a stick in the mud on that. 
In terms of other uh, points of agreement, again, I think that the EU's proposal for the Trade and Technology Council was tailor-made for a Biden administration that is very much focused on building up and strengthening uh, multilateral relationships. I think from the U.S. perspective, when you're looking at the technology angle in particular, something more like a T12, which has been what was floated by uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, and that would bring in not just the EU, but other U.S. allies and partners such as Australia, Japan, the U.K., and to all have a sort of standard-setting body. That's going to be quite hard on, on tech issues as there are a number of domestic issues that you'll need to pay attention to, but at least in terms of progress being made potentially on DSTs or on uh, standard settings for AI, I think that there is room for, for a positive agenda there. So you're saying that the EU was looking for an intimate dinner uh, on tech and the US invite is likely to invite Brussels to a house party. Is yep. that what you're saying? Yep. As, as Although house parties are fewer and far between in the pandemic days, but yes, that is the likely outcome. But it seems to me that all that we've been talking about so far, at least from the point of view of the EU, is all far cry from from the tension escalation under the Trump administration, where we were stumbling from crisis to crisis. And it seems to me that this all point uh, so far towards a positive agenda where the objective is to bridge positions and uh, to build momentum behind collaboration and cooperation. But is this really the only thing that awaits the two sides? I mean, Alessandro, there is some developments in the EU that are due to unfold uh, by summer that could dampen some of this optimism. Can you explain a bit what is in the pipeline uh, in the EU around tariff retaliations on Section 232 on aluminium? Sure. I mean, look, uh, there are two important points to keep an eye on in the pipeline. I mean, the first, perhaps more on the bright side, is that, as we all know, the EU and US agreed to suspend the dispute on aircraft subsidies for four months. Now, we can agree that this is a step forward, but it's far from a final resolution. And obviously, hoping to solve a 16-year-old dispute in four months is quite an ambitious endeavor. And while uh, we could see that uh, this time frame can be extended further, the, the underlying point is that the demands from the US to suspend the EU system of subsidies for aircraft development, known as repayable launch investment, might not be palatable for some member states. Now, this system allows member states to provide loans to Airbus, which will only be repaid if the aircraft in question uh, becomes a commercial success. Now, we all know that Paris, Berlin and Madrid are not ready to give that up. So I think on that, it's probably too early to pop the champagne in the house party we are talking about. On the other end, and probably uh, more on the bad side of things, uh, the other important inflection points in June is going to be an automatic increase of EU tariffs as retaliation to the, um, as you said, the US 232 tariffs on steel. Now, this is quite an important issue as we were talking before. The US tariffs on steel are quite important domestically for the US administration. And at the same time, Brussels officials already pointed out that suspended uh, such an automatic increase 
will mean that Biden needs first to remove the U.S. tariffs, which clearly seems at the moment as an unlikely uh, solution to the issue. We know how much the sector is keen to uh, keep those uh, tariffs in place. And again, finding a solution in three months seems, again, quite an ambitious endeavor. Miranda, how is the U.S. likely to respond to the doubling of EU tariffs related to the U.S. zone section 232 tariffs on aluminium? I think it's going to be really tough. I think it'll be a true um, test of the Biden administration's commitment to de-escalating these trade tensions. There are already um, developments from the domestic constituencies that Alessandra mentioned, you know, steel labor unions and the like, that are, are pressuring Biden to not give in to the EU's threats to to ramp up tariffs. We saw earlier in the Biden administration that he actually reimposed the Section 232 tariffs on the UAE. So he is certainly not afraid to hold the line on this. So I think it'll be really tough for the Biden administration to navigate that. Ultimately, I am skeptical that the EU's um, increase uh, on tariffs will actually result in the U.S. backing down on this issue, um, particularly as, you know, we're already going to be heading into 2022 election cycles, um, which seems crazy since we just <laughs> wrapped up the, the 2021 uh, or the 2021 um but it's a, it, that'll certainly be an important um, consideration for when the Biden administration weighs its potential response. So it seems uh, from what you were saying that we are far from entering a Goldilocks phase in the EU-US um, relationship. Um, listen, I think that wraps up uh, what we have for today. Uh, as always, if you Uh, your business or your investment is exposed to transatlantic risks, don't hesitate to get in touch. Uh, You can find contact details for Alessandro, Miranda and myself and our sectoral teams on the GC website. That's www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.